the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Once again, Alan Dempsey does our engineering, does it well. Andrew Herdliska is our producer. And our guest in the first segment is J.P. Pokluda. Uh, He... um, has been in Dallas for many years. He's moving to Waco, but that doesn't matter because we're going to talk about his book. Well, yeah. Welcome. to hey, thanks so much for having me on, Pat. So hey, JP, you. thank you. The book is called Welcome to Adulting, Navigating Faith, Friendship, Finances, in the Future. Uh, JP, first of all, uh, give us an overview on that title and, and what, you're, what you're doing here. What are you, what are you telling us? Absolutely. So for the past uh, decade, I've led a young adult ministry called The Porch in Dallas, but it's actually grown past the walls of Dallas to where now it has, we have 10 campuses around the country. So about 4,000, uh, 20 or 30-something. So when I say young adult, that's what I'm talking about, really, the, that college uh, into marriage, that season of life. And so in Dallas, we have about 4,000, and then we have 10 other campuses around the country. Uh, that gather on a Tuesday night and just hear the scripture priest. Well, doing that for the past 10 years, Pat, I've, uh, you know, so much of ministry is just pattern recognition. I've seen, you know, what has worked and what hasn't worked. I've seen the choices that 20 somethings have made that have led to life, and I've seen the choices that 20 somethings have made that have led to destruction. And so I just started documenting those patterns and writing them down, uh, which turned into this book, Welcome to Adulting. And my prayer has been all along that it would be helpful to this generation and even helpful to bridge the gap between Gen Y and the next generation. And I've just been overwhelmed by the grace of God at how well the book has done. And, you know, in my foolishness, I never thought uh, that it would do uh, as well as it has. And so that prayer that it has been helpful, that's been the emails that I get every day have just been, you know, this book has been so helpful in uh, me crossing over from college to the real world getting a job, helping me find a spouse, helping me manage my finances, helping me understand what God's purpose is for my life. And so that's been really fun to celebrate. Uh, the first chapter is simply called Life, Don't Miss It. What What do you write there? Well, that, that's because of my story, Pat. So I was raised in the church and uh, didn't go to church in college. You know, they say drug, sex, and rock and roll. For me, it was, it was drug, sex, and hip-hop. And and so I just, I, I really got lost in uh, the things of this world. When I graduated from college, I wanted to be a millionaire before I was 30. I was kind of everything wrong with Dallas in a person. It was pretentious. I had the, the penthouse condo, the Jaguar S-type, you know, a different suit for every day of the week and was trying to climb the corporate ladder. And I was at a bar 16 years ago and someone invited me to a church and I wasn't going to church at this time in my life. And so I went. I sat in the back row, hung over, smelt like smoke from the club the night before, and I began to wrestle with, you know, I've always said that I was a Christian, but I never really did anything with that. I just It was just a thing that I said. It was like a label that I would carry, but it didn't mean anything. And so I started wrestling with who is God, and I began to look at the world religions, and I began to look at all the faiths that are out there. And as I explored that, I was really blown away by the evidence that supported the historical narrative of Jesus, that 2,019 years ago, this man reset the calendar. We started counting over again from his birth, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, medieval Latin, for the year of our Lord. And, and as I was just really blown away by the historical and the archaeological evidence that supported him, I was, I was like, how did this guy become so world famous? And I realized it was because he died and came back to life. And that that was for me. And when I trusted in that, everything in my life, Pat, changed. Who I hung out with changed. The way I talked changed. What I did for fun changed. You know, the way I dated changed. And it was like, you know, sin robs you of creativity. That's what I want your listeners to hear. Sin, it robs you of creativity. You do the same things over and over, and you call it life. You go to the same bar. You, you, you 
uh, see with the same, uh, you hang with the same destructive people, and you call it life. And meanwhile, I, I was never really living. But when I became a Christian, then I, you know, I began to travel the world. I began to understand why I had breath in my lungs, why my heart beat in my chest. I began to experience life for the first time. And, and so that's why I just call that first chapter, hey, don't miss it. Don't miss it like I did. You know, that, don't miss it like I see so many other young adults missing out on their purpose in life. J.P. Bukluda, he's our guest. A second topic I want you to explain to us. Purpose. The reason you're here. Yeah, and so here's the deal. It's like a, there was an, uh, um, you know, there was a television commercial in Sweden where they had this, uh, you know, a daughter gives her father an iPad for Father's Day. And, and she says, you know, hey, Dad, did you like the iPad? And, and he goes, yeah, it, it works well. And then the, the camera zooms in on what he's doing, and he's using the iPad as a cutting board. He's chopping up vegetables on it, and then he takes it, and he rinses it, rinses it off under the sink, you know? And, and the viewers cringe because everybody knows that's not what an iPad is for. Like that, that, now, you could use it as a cutting board, but it's for so much more. And when I look at the 20 and 30-somethings of today, you know, the, the way that they're dating, they're dating for pleasure and, and for a next experience. Uh, the, they're, they're working to, you know, just try to uh, catch up. Their number one and number two goals in life are to be rich and to be famous. And really, almost everyone that I come in contact with, they're missing out on their purpose, that, that they were created in the same way that Steve Jobs made the iPad for a purpose. They were created by a creator God for a purpose, to, to live for something beyond themselves, and that when they find that, they find true happiness, true sustaining joy, uh, true direction in their lives. And so that's, that's really the heartbeat of this book, Welcome to Adulting, and specifically that second chapter on purpose. It, it is the, the things that I've documented over the past decade that I've seen have really helped young adults find their purpose. You're listening to J.P. Pakluda, author of Welcoming to Adulting, Baker Books. Put the book out. Third topic, authority. Who's in charge here? Question mark. Yeah, so I was, you know, it's funny because 16 years ago when I stumbled into that church hungover and smelling like smoke from the club the night before, you know, I, I wanted to be free. That's what I wanted more than anything else. I wanted to be in charge. I wanted enough money to be able to do whatever I wanted to do, to go wherever I wanted to go. And, and to rule over people. And the problem with that strategy is every single human being alive is under authority. And the ones that don't learn that very important lesson continue to rebel against authority, and they want freedom, but often what they want freedom from is integrity, which leads, it leads them to a trap. It, it enslaves people, maybe quite literally a trap like a, like a jail cell or a prison cell, but lead, can lead them to the streets uh, in homelessness, or, or it can lead them into a destructive life of, of sin patterns. And so the message that I heard that changed my life, Pat, was about a horse, a wild stallion that just wanted to be free. And in its pursuit of freedom, it had to find you know, food and water and shelter from the element, and uh, it didn't want to be captured, but people were trying to capture this horse to tame it. Well, one day this local cowboy successfully captured this horse, took him home, loved him, cared for him, provided for him, and even broke him. I say that in quotes, broke him to a point where he was able to ride him and lead him to food and lead him to water and, and to provide shelter from the elements. And this, this line right here, Pat, this is what got my heart. It wasn't until he was truly uh, submit, or fully submissive to his master that he truly experienced freedom. It wasn't until he was fully submissive to his master that he truly experienced freedom. And when I look at my own life, that's, that's what is true for me. It wasn't until I understood that there is a God who knows infinitely better than I do, and until I submit to his plan, only then will I actually find freedom. This is the paradox of the Christian faith, that freedom comes through submission that victory comes through surrender. Freedom comes through submission, and victory comes through surrender. My guest is J.P. Pogluda. He's in Texas. His book is called Welcome to Adulting. And uh, if you thought this first segment was interesting and exciting, well, 
Stay with us. We have another segment, and JP's going to talk about work and money and community and conflict and dating. And if we have enough time, we'll get to worry, recovery, eternity. Boy, we got a good segment ahead. Stay with us. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. In Orlando, J.P. Pucluda has written the book, Welcome to Adulting. The book's a witty, non-patronizing guide that gives advice on how to live an adult life that honors God. Well, as advertised, J.P., we move to the next topic. It's called work. Career counseling, you call it. Yeah. Yeah, Pat, that's a big one, especially for 20 and 30-somethings, because what I see so often is they graduate from college, they get in the real world, and they're like, man, their entire life has been lined up for them, you know, one thing after the other, go to this class, do this homework, and then they're out there in the real world, and it's like, all right, what do I do now? Uh, You know, what's next? And the biggest, you know, I think our greatest disappointments come from our expectations, our greatest discouragements in life come from our expectations. And I think when you go into the work world thinking, that it's going to fulfill you and that you're going to find just your purpose alone in work and uh, that, it's, that it's just a means to get rich, it really sets you up for some tremendous discouragement. But I think when you can go into it eyes wide open that a job is a means to provide, it's a means to be generous, it's an opportunity for you to live out your purpose of knowing God and making Him known, and it is just what it is and that there's no job out there that's going to fulfill you. I mean, even the people with the jobs that we everybody wants. You know, even Brad Pitt says this, Jim Carrey says this, Russell Brand says this. Uh, so many, you know, NFL uh, athletes and and stars have have said this that um, that there's got to be more to life than just the the mundane of work. And so that's that's why I, I wrote that chapter on work to to try to put a biblical worldview, a new perspective around why we work. And so that people can find joy and satisfaction in their toil. Now, I want you to tell us about money. It's not all about the Benjamins. It's it's similar to what I just said. It goes so hand in hand with work. And you know that Brad Pitt did an interview with Rolling Stone where he just said, "Hey, I get it. Everybody, you know, I've got the money. I've got the girl. I've got the job. Everybody wants to meet me. I know that. But I'm just telling you that when you have all of this stuff, you still wake up in the morning." wondering, you know, what's it all about? Tom Brady said the same thing. He's dating a supermodel, or he's married to a supermodel now. Five Super Bowl rings, uh, lots of money, lots of success. And he says in his interview, I think it was with 60 Minutes, he said, man, there's got to be more to life than this. And so I think if we look at money that, like, it's going to bring happiness, uh, we're going to set ourselves up for despair because it doesn't. You can even do, there's um, case study after case study uh, for lottery winners to see this, uh, that a lot of times, the, the money that comes into their lives, it brings devastation and destruction. And here's the deal. Every single person listening right now thinks this, not me. It won't happen to me. No, if I just had a little bit more, if I had this much, I would be happy. And we're all, we can all be foolish in that way because we, you know, we don't want to learn from the mistakes of others, from the mistakes of Solomon. The whole book of Ecclesiastes was written about this experiment right here. And so that's why I wrote this chapter on money. My guest is... J.P. Pokluda, the book, Welcome to Adulting. Next topic, community, your playmates and playgrounds. The number one advice I give to people, Pat, that they come and they say, hey, I'm bumping my head against the same problem. I'm making the same mistakes. I'm addicted to the same things. I need help. Is I'll tell them, hey, you need to change your playmates and your playground. And they'll be like, what do you want me to do? Just, just change my friends? And I'll say in one word, you know, just simply put, yes. Uh, the, you know, the scripture tells us bad company corrupts good character. And, you know, I, I've, I've heard it said that you are the sum of your five closest friends or the average rather of your five closest friends. I find that to be true. It's so much easier to pull someone down than it is to pull them up. And so for the people out there listening, thinking, well, I want to change them. I'm going to do ministry to them. That's why I hang out with them. You just, you need to go into that sober minded, realizing that it's so much easier to pull someone down than it is to pull them up in, in all avenues of life. And so, you know, do ministry to them 
when you know you're not emotionally attached in the relationship when you have healthy boundaries and you have lots of healthy relationships around you this is the biblical idea of community uh this idea pat of community changed my life god used it more than anything other than jesus to change my life when i got connected with some some guys at the church that i didn't even like and candidly didn't have anything in common with but i continued to show up every thursday night at 7 p.m. and god used those guys to conform me to the image and the character of Jesus more than anything else saved my marriage helped me be a great dad eventually and and uh helped me you know steward the resources that God has entrusted to me and, and really have helped me in every avenue of my life it's community is so so important and i think the next topic is important conflict the right way to yeah, be this- wrong and vice versa yeah, this is one that's not taught often in church, sadly, when the Bible has so much to say about it. You know, what we do when someone rubs us the wrong way is we continue to have the conversations in our head, driving down the road, we're, we're playing the chess game with them in our mind, and this is really unhealthy thinking. In fact, it can lead to depression, it can lead to despair. When the Bible gives us a process, it says when your brother sins against you, you go in private and you tell them directly. You don't talk to somebody else. You don't vent your anger to somebody else. You don't gossip in any way. You go to them, you look them in the eyes, and you say, hey, you hurt me, bye. And in doing that, Matthew 7, that's Matthew 18, Matthew 7 calls us to own our part, to remove the log out of our eye. And so there's, if there's any part of, that we have in the conflict, and maybe it's just 2%, Maybe it's 1%. We can own 100% of our 1%, 100% of our 2%, and we can go to them and say, hey, will you forgive me? Because as I was driving down the road, I was just thinking terrible thoughts about you. I was, I was getting angry. I was sinning in my anger. And, uh, and so the Scripture really outlines this process, Pat, that I've taught. I've, I've, I've flown over to Africa and taught the government on conflict resolution because this, these biblical ideas are so powerful when we apply them in our marriage, when we apply them in our relationships, when we apply them in our workspaces. And so that chapter really outlines uh, the things that I've learned from the Scriptures and from people much wiser than me on how to resolve conflict. JP, tell us about dating. Happily ever after, question mark. Yeah, dating's a big one because it's a huge felt need, especially from your listeners who are who are single uh, you know, they they want to be married. But here's the interesting thing, Pat, is we're not getting better at dating. We're not better, getting better at marriage, rather. And so if marriage is the end goal, you see that, that young adults are getting married later. They're getting married less. And so all the statistics are not trending well in the marriage area. And yet we have more help in dating with Tinder and Bumble and dating apps and dating websites. We have more help on dating I say that in quotes, than ever before. And so there's something, we're getting something tragically wrong. You know, dating is a relatively new idea. It was invented in in about 100 years ago. It was a euphemism for prostitution. When dating shows up in the English language, it was uh, was a euphemism for prostitution. And so we we don't think about that now. It's very commonplace to say, hey, to go on a date with someone. And I think it's important to understand that this is a new idea, that this isn't something that you're going to find in the Bible. And so I'm fine with people dating, but I think it's important that they have a a healthy framework, a healthy perspective, they have the end in mind, that they know why they're dating, that they're not just doing this for fun, and that they're leaving the person that they're spending time with better than they found them, not with a broken heart, not, not with heartache, not with hurt, not with sadness, but even if the relationship ends, that they would leave them better than they found them. And so I wrote a whole chapter on this to help my single friends date well. I want you to talk about worry, the only thing we have to fear. Yeah. Worry, you know, is probably the biggest felt need today, Pat, amongst young adults, because you have the highest levels of depression that the world has ever seen. You have the highest levels of despair, the, the highest suicide rate that the world has ever seen. So what is going on? I think a big part of this is social media. When we talked about community earlier, you know, that people have, you know, thousands and thousands of friends, I say in quotes, online. Uh, But in reality, they have very few relationships and people that they can go deep with. And so anxiety is ruling our lives. We don't know how to take the thoughts captive as the scriptures command us to. Um, The, you know, medication for depression is, 
is being handed out like candy. And I'm not against medication. I want to be careful there. I'm, I'm not against it at all. But I, I am I'm very, very pro learning healthy habits to uh, help our thinking so that we're not given to worry and anxiety. And this is something, Pat, that I struggled with firsthand about, you know, a year and a half ago, I, I you know, anxiety just jumped on me. I had a hard time sleeping, mm. extremely anxious, had anxious, intrusive thoughts. And so this is something that I've learned firsthand how to apply the scriptures in my own life to find healing from worry and anxiety. The, the scripture tells us, don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing, but by everything, with prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. And so this is a chapter that I've written that I hope, again, my prayer has been uh, that young adults would find it helpful. I've been so encouraged by parents that have bought this book for their kids. You know, it, it, it was written as like a graduation present. Grandparents have emailed me every week saying, you know, I bought this for my grandchild and uh, my my 20-something, and they, their life has been changed. They've been really impacted by the book. So those are the most encouraging things. I'd ask your listeners, let me know uh, how the book has impacted you, how it's helped you. And, um, and I'm so, so excited and honored to be on with you today, Pat. J.P. Pakluda is our guest. His book, Welcome to Adulting. Now, J.P., tell us about recovery, leaving the past behind. Yeah, you know... Um, this is another one that I've gotten to live firsthand, but also have, have had the privilege of observing tens of thousands of young adults uh, that have gone through some sort of recovery. Uh, I've been at a church where we've had have one of the largest recovery ministries in the country, and so there's you know addictions like my. If you look at my own life, I mean I've, I've experimented with drugs before I was a believer. Uh, there was some cocaine use, um, ecstasy, marijuana, but I, I came to a place where uh, you know, none of those things gripped me like the addiction of pornography. Mm. And that's not something that, that people talk about often. But in reality, uh, that, is, that is something that enslaved me. And as I went through and applied the principles of this book and, and became a Christian, I experienced complete and total freedom from those things and, and have uh, really been helped. And so that's my heart. I don't want to know the enemy wants to see us as slaves. He wants to see God's children in faith. And, um, you know, Jesus says, I've come so that they might uh, be free. I've, I've come to set them free, that you would experience real freedom. And um, I've come so that they might have life and have it to the fullest. And so I've just documented some things, some best practices that I've seen have helped people find freedom from the addictions of this world. And now let's uh, conclude with eternity, life in perspective. Yeah, so good. I mean, here's the reality. We're all going to die. We're all going to go somewhere. And the Bible tells us, you know, there's, there's two options there. There's, there's heaven and there's hell. And, uh, you know, there, it's really interesting to me. You think, like, why did God save us? You know, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And then he leaves us here. He doesn't just take us home immediately. And it's, it's because he has work for us to do here in this world that we're redeemers, that we're ambassadors of another kingdom. And so uh, I think the, the secret to living this life is living with eternity in mind, the reality that we're going to be somewhere forever. It's kind of like, you know, when you're going on vacation and you're at work and, you know, it, it, you know that you're about to leave for vacation. It's like almost like nothing matters. You know, the, hey, the, the coffee machine's on fire. Hey, it's okay. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to the beach. You know, I'm going to the mountains. I'm getting away. And so that, that day before you leave, it's just like you're able to hold your job loosely. Now, you can work hard and you do a good job, but in reality, you don't get caught up in the worries of the day-to-day. And, and for the believer, the follower of Jesus, uh, you know, this is the mindset that we live with, that this world is but a vapor. Our 76 years here, it, it's like a grain of sand on the beach of eternity. It's a dot on a timeline of forever. And so, you know, Jesus says that we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And so why would we live our 76 or 80 years here trying to maximize our 80 years when we can take our 80 years here and we can invest it into the next billion years, the next two billion years, the next hundred billion years? Uh, we can invest it in eternity. And so that's just this mindset that we need to live with eternity in mind. We need to live with the end in mind. 
Well, I can't thank you enough, JP. What a book. Uh, what thank an, you. What an interview. Um, and I wish you all the best as you leave Dallas and head to Waco, JP. Whatever your assignment is there, uh, all the very, very best to you. And uh, keep writing, if I may add. Keep writing. Your stuff is good. Hey, thank you, friend. Pat, thanks so much for allowing me to be on here and sharing this with the world. I'm so grateful for you, and, and I, I, I wish you all the best. Blessings, friend. J.P. Pakluda has been our guest. We've got more. Stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. J.P. Pakluda, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Welcome to Adulting. Megan Larissa Good, she's with us, teaching pastor at Trinity Mennonite Church in Glendale, Arizona. Her new book is out, The Bible Unwrapped. Uh, Megan uh, offers new light on old stories in The Bible Unwrapped. Welcome, Megan. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Explain that uh, that I just read. Uh, She offers new light on the old stories in The Bible Unwrapped. Can you explain that? Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor and a teacher of the Bible, and when I talk to so many Christians around the country about their habits of reading the Bible, why they read or why they don't, um, it, it's amazing how many people tell me they have a high view of the Bible, but they don't spend a lot of time reading it. Um, it might be because they find it confusing what they're supposed to take from it. It might be because they're tripping on some of the difficult texts of um maybe genocide in the Old Testament or different dark passages. So I wrote this book to help people work their way through some of the difficult questions that were presenting obstacles for them. Your first chapter, The Great What If, a good place to start. Tell tell us what you mean by that. Well, you know, I, I've read a lot of books introducing or, or talking about how to read the Bible. Um, But one of the questions that we often don't start with is the very ground-level question, um, why should we dare to believe a world, we're living in a world where God is involved or speaks at all? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for for many people, particularly for young adults that I talk to, this is a a very fundamental question. Um, Is this world, world made up in a way that it is open to God's engagement? And so part of what I'm thankful to think about is, rather than thinking of the world as a closed system that God sits outside of and might break into on occasion, to imagine the world as a place where God's fingers are dug into the soil all the time, where God's involvement is not an anomaly or an exception, but it's a part of the the daily shape of reality. We don't know a world without God's engagement, is the truth of the human story. And that puts us on different footing to ask how God might engage. Then you move to this topic, quantum leaps, reasons for reading. Uh, tell us about that. So, so one of the questions people might be asking themselves is, why should I read the Bible at all? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it is is taking a step back. And, um, you know, some people tell me, I, I read it once, I know what it says, so I read again. Um, and part of the invitation is to imagine... You know, the Bible isn't just a book of rules that you sort of read once and you know the rules and you go on, Um, but the Bible is forming imagination for God-shaped possibilities in the world and and how we participate in those possibilities. And, you know, the average average American, they say, is exposed to something between 4,000 and 5,000 advertisements every day. Mm. And every one of these advertisements is telling a, a certain story about what reality is and what is possible, and what's desirable, and what's necessary. And, you know, those messages are shaping our imagination every day. So part of what what the Bible is doing is forming imagination for a a different set of possibilities, a a different vision of what's desirable. Um, And if we don't kind of push against the current, we end up riding it toward a story we might not even realize is kind of being read to us every day. So so that's one of the reasons it's important to read. but another one is just keeping in mind the vastness of God. That many people are are their instinct is to shape a religion around their own religious kind of intuitions. Um, but even if even if every experience we have of God is is real and true, and we're right about everything that we intuit from our experience, 
the the whole being of God and the mystery of God is just so huge and so vast um, that we've only seen a tiny fraction of it. Um, and, and sometimes what happens is our vision is not perfect, and, and we end up shaping a, a faith and belief about the world that is mostly formed by kind of looking in the mirror and seeing our own reflection and preferences and assumptions and philosophies reflected back to us and thinking that is who God is. So part of what the Bible offers us is a kind of window rather than a mirror to look outside and see something more than our own reflection. Beyond basic instructions, what kind of book? That's your next chapter, right? Yes. So here in this chapter, I'm pushing back a, a little against the idea that the Bible is just a book of rules or just instructions. Um, you know, almost half of the Bible is narrative um, stories, and we don't sometimes think to ask the question, what does it mean that God gave us not primarily uh, a kind of ma- like vacuum manual, um, but a book of narrative? Um, what does it mean to engage with God through the language of, of stories? And that's really where we're invited to kind of form this new imagination to ask, as we read the stories of the Bible, um, what did these people experience of God? What did they see truly? Um, what assumptions did they make that turned out to be false? Um, so, so entering into a story is a little bit different than entering into a rule. It, it invites you to engage with the people and ask, what are you learning of God, and what are you learning about the ability of humans to walk with God and the mistakes that people make along the way? Now, I want you to tell us about the world in color, shaping biblical imagination, unwrapping Joshua 5.13 through 6.27. This sounds intriguing. (laughs) Yeah. So I think sometimes if we ask ourselves what kind of book we would want from God, what we'd really like is kind of turn-by-turn directions for life. Um, every day, all of us make all kinds of big, important decisions. Um, you know, ev- everything from what kind of job we're going to work to who we're going to engage in relationships with, and, and we feel like our lives would be easier if we had just kind of turn-by-turn instructions. Um, but of course, the problem with turn-by-turn instructions is that sometimes the roads change. Um, a-, a while back, somebody, I was on my way to an event, and someone was giving me instructions over the phone on how to get there, but they weren't aware that a new roundabout had been put in the road. Um, so I took a turn where they weren't aware there was a roundabout and ended up miles away from the destination I was aiming toward. Um, so, so the problem with having a Bible that is shaped with turn-by-turn directions is as, as the road changes, as the landscape changes, um, we can actually end up in a destination we never meant to go. And so what the Bible offers us instead of, of those turn-by-turn directions is, is a vision of the destination and a, and a call forward always in a particular direction. And it's, I think, a God has more faith in human beings and a higher call for human beings than we often credit. Um, it's not just about you know, being able to follow, follow the turn that we were told we had to take, but God is actually forming our, our minds into the mind of Christ so that we're able to navigate the world, um, so that we know because we are in tune with the Spirit of God and we're shaped by the character of Christ, we, we know how to make the turn when the turn comes. We know what direction we're supposed to be facing. Um, so, so we're being formed as whole human navigators and not simply as people who um, you know, can follow old-fashioned map quests such a big, beautiful, ambitious picture of, of what it means to grow in the fullness of the image of God. Megan Larissa Good is with us. She's in Glendale, Arizona. Her book is called The Bible Unwrapped. Becoming Batman, Biblical Origins. Fill us in. So some people have given a lot of thought, maybe some people have never thought at all about where does the Bible come from? Um, what, is, what is the sequence of events by which we get these words that, that we take so seriously? Um, so what I was doing in this chapter was exploring how did we actually get the, the different sections of the Bible that we have? And there's such wonderful different stories for, for different parts of the Bible and where they came from. Um, some of the oldest stories of the Bible were originally transmitted orally. 
And if you listen carefully to the stories in Genesis, for example, you, you can still hear kind of rhythms of thought and repetitions, and the stories are arranged so that people could memorize them, so they could be passed down as family stories from one generation to the next. Um, you, you have sections of the Bible like the prophets. Um, the prophets were originally not writers, but preachers. And so they would give public messages, and their, their books were eventually written down by students who were reflecting on what they'd learned from these teachers and, and how those learnings might apply in new contexts that emerged later. Um, in the New Testament, we have Gospels that first circulated as, as oral passing down of stories of, here's this incredible thing we saw happen in Jesus, and, and what do we think it means? And we, we have letters that were written by leaders of communities who are addressing specific needs and questions that have arisen in these early Christian communities. Um, so, so part of what knowing the origin of these books shows us is the, the really wonderful human dimension of, of the various ways that God relates to people. Um, even a book like Psalms that includes prayers that people were praying and songs that they were singing. Um, all of these different ways of God engaging with communities over time are, are folded into the story we've been given as sacred literature. What's the breath test mean, the process of canonization? So there's a moment in time in the early church when they have to make a decision. You know, how are we actually going to determine which books are going to make it into the Bible? Mm -hmm. um, there were many stories of Jesus circulating. There are all sorts of letters being written from one Christian to another. So how do we decide which are, are the books which we're going to sort of maintain and make a part of this, this new emerging, um, what we would call the canon? And, you know, it, it wasn't as if the early church thought there are these books that we've decided to put in the Bible are the only books that God has ever used or ever spoken through. Um, but they were looking for some key factors in which books they included. Um, some of the factors, like who is the author? Is this author someone we, we trust and believe is reliable, who is either an eyewitness or, or knows an eyewitness to the story of Jesus? Um, is this book one that a variety of churches are finding helpful? Because there's no point in holding on to a letter or a book that is, isn't useful to anyone. Um, is, this, is this book or is this letter, does it conform to the kind of core story of Jesus, the, the good news of Jesus that we've been teaching from the beginning? Um, and, and is this book widely accepted by Christians across a diverse area? Um, so these were some of the kind of key factors they were considering in, in weighing which books to be included. So the early Christians didn't see themselves as selecting from scratch or making up which books should be included in the Bible. They saw themselves as recognizing which books are reliable, um, which, which books have been useful and trustworthy to the community, and those books they gathered into a collection that they called the canon, which basically means the measuring stick. And it was their way of saying, this set of books, um, we believe, testifies to the true core foundation of the story, and they will be a measuring stick going forward as we continue to listen for God and experience God in our lives. They'll be the kind of measuring stick for us to use to see if what we think we're hearing in the future um, is reliable and trustworthy according to, to what we've seen in Jesus and, and discerned in the past. Megan, what became of those books, letters, or stories that didn't make the cut? Uh, where did they end up? You know, if you look at we ha we actually have really good documentation of the list that the Church was using early on and what books were always included and what they were debating, and it's remarkable how early they came to consensus as to the, the books that we have in our Bible. Um, there was just a, a couple of books, actually, that um, delayed a bit as the, the Church debated them, and there were a couple that, that came back out. Um, but there's, there's one set of books in particular that Christians may or may not be aware of, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. There's a collection of books called the Apocrypha um, that will be included in your Bible if, if you have a Catholic Bible and not if you have a Protestant Bible. Um, this, this set of books was written in the period between the Old and New Testament, and even in Jesus' day there was some debate about how much authority these books have, and the kind of basic feeling of the Church, even at the time, was that this set of books should be taken seriously. It has helpful things to say, but it probably shouldn't be given as 
much weight. It's not as, as authoritative as the Old and New Testaments themselves. So, so given that status is kind of like a, a mid-level set of books, there was debate all, all through, really, the first 1,500 years of church history of should these books be in or out. Um, and for a while, that debate was solved by some early church leaders by saying they're in, but at the time of the Protestant Reformation, um, Protestants removed that set of books. Megan Larissa Good is our guest in Glendale, Arizona. The name of her book, The Bible Unwrapped. We've got more with Megan. Stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Our guest is Megan Larissa Good, her book, The Bible Unwrapped. And Megan, we've arrived at this topic when pets reign, selecting a translation. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, so you might be asking yourself, how do you choose what Bible translation to read? Which, which translation gets it right? Um, and, and the truth is, there are all sorts of wonderful translations, but every Bible translation is making certain choices on, on what priorities to favor. Um, some translations are designed to tell you as close to word-to-word as possible uh, of what the original language says, and other translations are more focused on helping you grasp the general concept of what the original writer meant. Um, so that's why some Bibles might read a bit in English. They might seem a bit grammatically stiffer or a bit harder to read, and other translations sound a lot more like a person today talking. Um, those translators are, are making decisions about how kind of how much to flex the grammar and the language in order to get the concept across. So if you'd like to know where your Bible falls on that spectrum, um, if you just do a search online for Bible translation chart, most common translations will show up on a spectrum from word to word um, to thought for thought, and you can see where your translation is located. And if you want to make your Bible reading fresher, you might want to consider trying a translation for a while that's on another spot in that spectrum. You might hear some new things. The next part of your book, the story, Act 1, the Old Testament, and then the story, Act 2, the New Testament, what are you telling us there? Yeah, these two chapters of the book, in some ways, are the core of it for me, but they're the hardest to summarize. Um, because they're basically my attempts in about 10 pages or so to tell the entire narrative arc of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the tricky parts of the Bible for many people is that the books are not actually ordered exactly as the story unfolds. The, the books don't all function, fit in historical order. Um, so, and they are made up of all different genres, from poetry to history to um, different kinds of stories and proverbs and so sometimes it's hard. It's like listening to a book on tape on shuffle. You're not always sure when you're reading how the pieces fit together. So these chapters are my attempt to put the pieces together for you in a, in a kind of broad sweeping story and say, like, there there is a coherent story the Bible is telling in all these different kinds of language and all these different parts. And um, being able to, to pick that, that narrative arc out can help you then begin to put some of the confusing pieces in and understand how those pieces are meant to function and support the entire story. Let's um, talk about dining with strangers, a posture for reading, story time, unwrapping the book of Jonah. Tell us all about that. Yeah, if you had been educated in in the West in the last hundred years, um, one of the things that um, universities tend to teach is what, we often call critical reading skills, or um, the, the ability to kind of critique literature and pull it apart and ask, um, you know, what, what are the motives behind it? Or, or you know, we, the term is often used, a hermeneutic of suspicion, like raising questions, kind of taking pieces apart. And that's a really, you know, a valid and useful and important tool in our repertoire of reading. But one of the difficulties when it comes to the Bible is um, many people are in so deeply entrenched in the habit of kind of taking things apart that they come to the Bible and it's, it's difficult to hear it speak. Um, so one of the things I really encourage and suggest to people to do is if you want to hear the Bible speak more powerfully in your life, you have to give the Bible its turn in controlling the conversation. It can't just be about you taking apart the text and 
and asking the questions and critiquing. You have to let the Bible question you back. So, so one of the real kind of disciplines of reading Scripture well is to put yourself on kind of the, the other side of the interrogation table and, and make sure that you're hearing yourself being questioned, like what, what questions the texts are raising for you, not just being aware of the questions that you're asking. Now, let's get to this topic, Melissa. Grabbing buggies, introduction to interpretation. What's all that mean? When I began to write this book on interpreting the Bible, um, so many people I talked to when I explained I was writing on interpretation would immediately react with concern. Um, Because many Christians have the sense that when we talk about interpreting the Bible, um, we're either saying that the Bible is such a complicated book to read that normal people without expert degrees can't read it, or that we're talking about manipulating the Bible so we can make it say whatever, whatever we want it to say. Um, by, by kind of using sneaky techniques to come in the back door. But when we talk about interpreting the Bible, it, it's important to recognize interpretation as something we do in conversation all the time, every day, without even realizing it. I, I have a friend from New England, and when, when she says to me, will you grab me a buggy, um, that can be a confusing sentence for me because I've spent a lot of time living in the Midwest where we have many Amish communities. And when I think of buggy, I think of a you know, horse pulling a black covered cart with people sitting in it. But for my friend from New England, when she says the word buggy, what she's picturing is a shopping cart. Uh-huh. So the act of interpretation is, is me taking a moment to match my mental picture with the mental picture of the person who's speaking with me, making sure basically that when God is asking me for a shopping cart, I'm not reaching for a horse and carriage. Um, so, so interpretation is not about manipulating text. It's about making sure that we're hearing what the text and the author are actually saying. What is this chapter about spliced literary context? So if there is a single tip that I would give readers of the Bible that can totally transform the way that you read, um, it, it's to pay more attention when, when you're reading a particular passage, pay attention to what comes immediately before and immediately after uh, a section. Um, it, so often we get in the habit of, of reading the Bible kind of piecemeal, where we might pull out a, a verse or we might pull out a paragraph, and we really have no idea what was said right before and what was said right after. And it's amazing how often, without that context around it, we can totally misunderstand the story we're hearing. A really good example of that is the story in the, the New Testament of Jesus in the temple where he points out to his disciples this widow who's just given her kind of final coin. Um, and, and many people are familiar with that story, maybe from Sunday school as children, and they think this is just a story about a woman who is giving generously. She's a, she's a model for the rest of us on how to be generous. Um, but if you read what comes right before that story and what comes right after it, you'll you'll find that right before Jesus points out this widow, um, he is talking to his disciples about his concern with the religious institution of the temple and its leaders, and he tells them to watch out for people who are devouring poor widows. And immediately after the story, the disciples look around the temple and they say, Jesus, isn't this building beautiful? And Jesus says, God's judgment is coming here, and not one stone will be left on the other. Um, so reading this story with the context around it, you discover this isn't just a simple story about a poor woman's generosity. But it's, it's a story that is inviting Christian disciples, um, the church itself, to ask questions about, is our faith serving this poor widow? Does it see her? Um, why is she this poor? What, what is the relationship between our whole religious system and, and the widow who is standing there with a single dollar? So the story is so much bigger and, and more complex, and, and it asks new questions if we read the entire context. My guest, Megan Larissa Good. We could spend the next couple of hours talking to Megan because her book is that uh, full. It's it, it's in depth. But in closing, Megan, uh, give a word of counsel, <clears throat> uh, a word, <clears throat> excuse me, a word of advice uh, to our listeners. What what would you tell them? Well, in addition to that that bit about literary context, I'd say if you want to get more out of your Bible reading, there's a couple things you should do. Um, First of all, slow down. Whatever it takes for you to read slower. Um, 
sometimes I copy text by hand. You might try reading the text out loud. You might memorize or use art supplies. Um, do whatever it takes for you to hear more slowly. Um, and also remember that one of the best ways to hear a text fresh is to either read it in a new setting or to take a new risk. Um, because sometimes when you put yourself in a, in a new place for faith, um, you, you hear what God is saying and how God is leading in a, in a whole different way. So if you found your readings getting dry, um, find a new setting to read in, take a new risk, and, and read in light of a new situation, and you'll find you hear it in whole new ways. Megan Larissa Good, she's been our guest. We've got a wrap-up, folks, right after this. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. And remember, faith comes by hearing. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. J.P. Pakluda, he was with us from Texas talking about his book, Welcome to Adulting. And then Megan Larissa Good in Glendale, Arizona, talked about her book, The Bible Unwrapped. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page is Orlando Magic Pat. And I have a new book that's just out. It's called Character Carved in Stone, a, uh, an experience I had at West Point at uh, at army and uh i tell all about it 12 interesting chapters i think you'll enjoy the book <clears throat> mike shashevsky the duke basketball coach wrote the forward he's a graduate of west point so the book's up available at amazon and in bookstores anyway we'll be back next weekend for more on the pat williams saturday power hour right here <clears throat> on 94.9 fm and am 950 the word of course in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 